So if we're going to become an international power in the digital kind of revolution, if you will, God, there was a lot of hyperbole in that sentence. It's not about should we do security? Am I going to get hacked? It's we need to do security. It is expected of us from our target audience. And that's how a power in this space behaves. It is table stakes. And once we start seeing it as part of just growing good business, good digital business, then it stops being optional. It starts being good at what we do. And I think that's what we do best. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Hey folks, greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain. And we have with us Laura Balmain from SafeStack. How are you, Laura? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. Glad you've been able to make it to uh, Auckland. We've been planning this for, for a little while, and uh, it's been a little bit of a challenge to get between Auckland and uh, Whangarei recently. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's more of an epic adventure than you would imagine at this moment, but we got here. Um, and so, yeah, really pleased to be uh, here in person and, and chatting with you today. Yeah, that's great. Before we delve into all the exciting um, bits and pieces, we want to thank our exciting part show partners. Uh, so thank you to Vodafone, Two Degrees, Spark, HP and Gorilla Technology for their support of the New Zealand Tech Podcast and helping us keep going and uh, come to you uh, both live and video form for those that are uh, watching the live stream and of course in the usual audio podcast. Well, I'm really keen to hear all about SafeStack, your company. Um, maybe you can, just before we sort of delve into some of the, the newsy topics, um, which will be fairly cybersecurity focused, I think, uh, today. Oh, I'm, no. I'm sure um, listeners would, would just love to know a little bit about uh, SafeStack and, uh, and, and what you do, and then we'll come back and Absolutely. really delve into that after. So we're, we're really mission-focused. We're on a mission, if you will. There are 30 million software developers in the world right now, growing at a rate of 1.2 million per year. And we think it will be pretty amazing if every single one of those developers or members of the development team had the skills they need to put security in from having an idea and no code all the way through the life of that code. And that's what we do. We have an education platform that we sell now into 65 countries, um, aiming to make security just part of what we do when we build software. That's awesome. That is as a very needed uh, thing, uh, both you know here in New Zealand and and globally. So looking forward to delving in on that. Now, there's you know huge most weeks we sort of delve into a whole lot of tech news. Well, this week we're sort of looking around. Um, there's so much from a cybersecurity perspective. I thought let's let's just actually focus in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, focus in <laughs> on that. Uh, TikTok was was really the big. I mean, it's been, this is TikTok has been. You know, we've discussed from a, a cybersecurity and you know a privacy perspective TikTok over a, over a really you know long long period. Yeah. There have been you know in the in the earlier days of TikTok when it when it was growing, there were you know people that were looking at the the apps, looking at the uh, the Android app probably in particular, decompiling it and having yeah. a look and finding things that were, um, you know, quite quite worrisome, yeah. shall we say. And that's just, that's continued on. We've seen governments pushing back in, mm. in varying uh, forms. Uh, there was, I, I guess... When uh, Trump was president of the United States, there was a you know a whole move there which seemed like something big's going to happen, and it didn't you know it didn't <laughs> quite it didn't quite happen. Talk yeah. of banning of banning TikTok and so on. Of course, since then TikTok's only got more and more uh, prolific, do dominant, yeah. prolific. <laughs> yeah, it's it, you know it really has been has been going nuts uh, towards the end of last year. Uh, we we saw reporting coming through that said that uh, TikTok had admitted that their staff had been using yeah data from the app to uh, do surveillance on some journalists, yeah. which just it's sort of beggars belief. And then you know you you attach uh, to that the the differences of. A company, a social media company, operating out of uh, China, where you're under the jurisdiction of the Chinese Communist Party, and I'm not saying that you know everything's well and good and perfect in 
in any other country, but that creates but some, right? some uh, bigger complications. <laughs> yeah. And when we think of the whistleblowing situations that we've, you know, that we've seen around, you know, things of, yeah, particularly a privacy nature within within the U.S. government, military, uh, social media companies, and tech companies. People seem quite willing to come forward to be open mm. and and transparent, and in most cases, um, there's there's exceptions like Edward Snowden and, and so on, where it doesn't you know play out well for the individual. But you know, it seems like the environment there you know encourages the sort of openness. Whereas, mm. I think that if you do that in certain uh, countries like China, then your your chances of there's a higher risk. Success and uh, <laughs> yeah. and and not uh, uh, yeah not um, not being at major risk is yeah. uh, is very different. Yeah, um, and and I think that the TikTok situation is very interesting because, I mean, what's unique about this is the the origin and the the operating environment that, that app has come from, but. I, you know, and I'm a slight cynic, so, you know, audience at home, forgive me. The following opinions are mine and mine alone. Um, just if you kind of step back from the is it bad or is it good thing and think about would humans do this if they had the chance? If an, a, a government or any large organization who wanted to understand a population for whatever reason, being very diplomatic with my choice of words, <laughs> um, had the ability and the long kind of long play and budget to go and build or control the largest social media platform on the planet, if I'm completely honest, and this is a cynic in me, I'm pretty certain most countries will do it. Um, you know, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that any organization who wishes to do that contributes to that in ecosystem as code or as plugins or as apps or companies. What's unique here is the size and the scale and the, the way it's taken off. Um, and so it's it's really tricky. I mean, the regulations we're putting in now, you know, we're seeing the countries pulling it out. You're not allowed to do it. And there's rules now, at least for government employees. But people are like water. But, you know, they, they're using the app for a reason. There's a connection with it. And so if they're not using it on their work device, great, fantastic. But who amongst us really now truly has separation between our work and our home devices or our work and our home just way we operate? And it's not much of a stretch to say, you know, are our personal devices physically in, in you know, sensitive spaces as well? And how far do we go with this before we have to think, is there another way to approach it? Can we ban every app that we think is doing some form of surveillance? Because anyone who's using the Google, Google ecosystem knows full well that while it may not be ostensibly government-backed, they know as much information about me and my life as probably anyone else. They know definitely know more than my husband. So, yeah, That's, it's it's yeah. an interesting space. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I used to work for the UK government um, and uh, in Signals in particular. So I'm acutely aware of the complexity of making policy decisions in the space and how much information can be shared and how much can't. And it is really very tricky for, for all of this to play out. However, we've never yet ever seen banning a technology work when it comes to stopping surveillance and intelligence systems from working. So I think, you know, this, this has drawn attention for now. Perhaps it will change a few people's behaviours, but I don't think it's going to have a large impact long term. Yeah, look, I, I think this aspect, and you know, it's the UK and it's New Zealand that have yeah have both announced TikTok yeah not to be on at least parliamentary mm. uh, devices at, at this stage, and I guess it will be up to individual organisations and government entities as to exactly how you know how far they might um, you know they might extend mm. that from devices that they that they have managerial capabilities over and other policies, but. Yeah, as you say, this is this is not easy. Now, the one I guess if we were looking at uh, some form of of solution has been the approach from um, from the Biden regime in the U.S. to say, "Look, ByteDance, as the owner of TikTok, 
you either sell, you know, you sell TikTok uh, to a, a US company mm-hmm. uh, or you will be banned. Now, that to me seems like an un- unprecedented action yeah. from, from a Western democracy. However, if we spin things around and we look at China, of course, China, for a while, China so. have, have banned and blocked, you know, um, social media applications, Wikipedia, mm-hmm. and, you know, may, many other, you know, information sources for a really long period. Now, that is a, a reflection of a regime that, you know, probably a, a reasonably high percentage of um, those that live in a democracy would be very uncomfortable with in terms mm-hmm. of that approach. Um, but it, it it does seem as though TikTok brings with it the kind of the next level of of risk. And so if you are looking to, to try and solve that, is that an appropriate sort of pressure to put on do you you know what are you, what are your thoughts what a question for a monday morning Paul. <laughs> my goodness um well i think we need to think about this this is a short term and this is a long term for tiktok for this particular situation it's an interesting precedent when you separate a company and you say hey you've got to sell it to my country and we're going to operate it from here it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work that way there's quite a lot of engineering needs to go on to make that actually a thing of course and just yeah, because your head office is, yeah, uh, yeah. Just because your head office is in, you know, Plano or San Francisco, it doesn't mean that your tech is going to be. Oh, look, are we going to then take it logically to back on prem? Is that what we're going for here? Boxes under a table, um, because we know where it physically is located. I think I don't think we're ready for that. I don't think it's a good idea to go back to that. Um, and I think there's a superficial nature to saying, hey, we'll just do operations from here. Because operations is a big, big thing, especially for a platform like TikTok. That's not a build it in a weekend job as much as Reddit and Hacker News would like you to tell to know that they could build it in a weekend. Um, but it also it's the long term, right? TikTok is now. And before that, it's been other platforms. You know, this isn't our first rodeo when it comes to platforms gaining notoriety and popularity. All we're doing now is that the sheer scale of them is changing. So more of us have smart devices, more of us are interacting with them on a, you know, I wouldn't even say regular basis, almost constant basis, let's face it. Um, But let's look forward again. We've still got developing markets that are not in that space yet. So the availability of smartphones in Southeast Asian countries outside of China is actually still relatively low. They're still on quite budget devices. As that starts to ramp, and it is, there's a massive developing ecosystem there, then are we going to have equally challenging conversations if, you know, a player from Indonesia where they have 180 million people in their country, therefore when they build something, they build something big that works. Are we going to have the same conversations then? And do we need to have a little bit of a step back and go, okay, what is what are the risks here and what what can we do that's going to be less specific than one organization, one country and one app at this time? Because otherwise we're going to keep repeating this. And there's a reason you've never heard of any of the startups that come out of Indonesia, for example, because they can make billions of dollars without leaving their borders. And the second their tech catches on elsewhere, it goes huge because it's been tested on massive populations and they love it. So I think we need to kind of it's it's great we're taking steps now, but I think there's a naivety in just saying, hey, we can pull this in and control it because things are going to get a lot more complicated really quickly. Yeah. Yeah, um, I I agree. There's no, uh, there's no, you know, there's no quick fix. Um, but I can I can definitely see out of out of the options for the current you know current scenario uh, that there there could be some positives. But mm. as you said, I mean there there are issues with every you know every social media platform. Mm. Probably you know Meta, Meta is the one I've you know, probably criticised the most in yeah. the media over. Over you know recent years, but quickly that is pivoting to to yeah. TikTok. But there are elements that make me more concerned about TikTok than yeah. Meta. Um, if you had to put them on a scale, um, yeah. but there are there are issues across the board with these yeah, platforms. Absolutely, just to add a little bit of levity to our morning, um, we could solve the problem ourselves, Paul. 
we could engage all the people like us who have a little bit more gray hair than we do natural uh, color <laughs> at this point. And if we start massively adopting TikTok, it will become desperately unpopular. And so we could solve this just by virtue of being us and engaging <laughs> with the platform. So, you know, just something to try for your week. If you are bored, we could save the world all together. Right. Thank, thank you for that suggestion, <laughs> uh, Laura. Um, and we'll throw that challenge out to uh, out to uh, listeners as well. <laughs> um, other topics going on. Um, Blackboard, who are the maker of uh, fundraising uh, software, fundraising sort of CRM type tools, uh, have been in the media again. They have had they've had some issues with their um, with ransomware hitting uh, their platform. They have varying versions of their software. You can run it on your, you know, within your organisational uh, environment, locally on your premises, hosted servers, or you can use their, what they call cloud-hosted uh, variant. Uh, and they've been slapped with a $3 million fine um, by the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, in the US because they broke some rules from a disclosure perspective. Mm-hmm. Just It's just a, another sort of negative for them, I think, because, you know, there have been a number of things mm. over over recent years. I think probably the highest profile uh, organisation in, in New Zealand that I'm, uh, that I recall seeing uh, coverage on that was impacted by this was Auckland uh, University. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they would do fundraising, I think, probably from their alumni, uh, and uh, yeah, it sounds like a bunch of that uh, that information got out there. Um, interesting, and, and some of the information around this was um, details that they were an organisation that paid the ransom to mm. uh, to sort of make uh, make a problem go away, uh, but then they didn't disclose things properly, and hence they're paying the equivalent of another ransom with this uh, with this fine. Isn't it fun though that the only reason that we're really hearing about this is because of an admin error, because of the disclosures, not because of the security breach itself. This, you know, our focus isn't on the liability for bad thing happened and you should have taken steps. It's you didn't write this in the right way and tell us the right details and therefore, you know, auditors get involved. It's, I, I find it quite sad. It's good that we do find out. It's good that we have some forms of law that require breach disclosure. However, it's it's still incredibly limited to what it should be. Um, yeah, we are starting to see some things um, turning. One of the other... Um Stories came across was a um, a Florida uh, health care group, uh, Orlando uh, Family Physicians. They run um, ten clinics across uh, Central Florida, and they are now having to reimburse uh, patients that mm. were impacted on a you know basically individual uh, payment basis, depending on what what data was uh, was was stolen. And the information I've seen indicates that patients will receive up to seven and a half thousand US dollars per head. So if a patient's social security number yep. was leaked, and that can you know be quite uh, have some pretty major Absolutely. negative negative consequences. Much more than our IRD right. numbers. Like you know, if you're used to your IRD numbers, like yeah, whatever. No, Social Security is pretty much your key to everything. Yeah. The, the Florida situation is interesting because the U.S. doesn't have uniform approaches to privacy mm. and it doesn't have equivalency anymore with international privacy standards. Um, so what Florida is doing is following suit from the Californian um, privacy uh, legislation. And that states that if you have people who are harmed or could be potentially harmed so their data has been leaked, mm. that you have to provide remediation not just now but also for the coming years um, now, there's, there's goods and bads of that. The laws in the US, because of they're based on where you're physically located, um, it's very difficult to get a uniform approach when your customer base is over multiple states or jurisdictions. Um, and the other side is we've now got a, I'll be a bit crude with the language, why not, a bit of a parasitic industry popping up of we'll provide you an insurance and a package that you just pay us and we then pay them and you know anytime there's this kind of situation somebody pops up and says hey I'll take your pain away so that's what's happening. I think um, it's a good start that they are having to do that though because the more public the cases are where that compensation is required the more 
the US is likely to push towards a countrywide um, federal legislation on privacy rather than relying on individual states to have their own approach. Yeah, that's um, it's, it's a challenge, isn't it, that we've got such variable uh, legislation in, in, in different areas and New Zealand, uh, there, you know, there there isn't there isn't really you know a whole lot of use at this point in time, right? From from well, the legislation. Well, uh, so we, we have good legislation. It has good equivalency globally um, with GDPR and things. The problem is that we're not good at enforcing, um, and I'm not I'm not an enforcing for you know. Let's not just punish everyone to make sure everyone listens. Yeah. Uh, but we do have stuff in there that talks about breach disclosure, and we do have requirements. We have a clear set of principles that are aligned with Australia, that are aligned with Europe. Um, but we're still very small and our expertise is very low. And so privacy being like the strange cousin to cybersecurity, we see parallels with how that's going there. And I think what, what it will take is more of our companies are becoming multinational, particularly in the digital space from here. And as we start becoming um, obligated to follow international privacy law, um, we'll naturally see a local upscale too because you have to comply with the strictest law that you are operating under. So the more we sell outside our borders, the more strict we'll end up being inside just by virtue of that kind of inheriting it from our more international clients. Yeah, it's a really, really good perspective. And also the, the legislation in other markets tends to have more teeth than the, than the New Zealand legislation, which I guess yeah. was, was more what I... You know, was as as what um, yeah frustrates me in a in a way yeah. is there's yep the the structures and so yeah. on are there, but if there's no you know pain, then but, but even uh, with the teeth, right? Hard. GDPR has massive sharp teeth. We've all mm. seen the you know mm. what's written there, but in terms of case um, and precedent so far, mm. they haven't handed down the fines yet that we expected to be mm. coming through. Mm. Um, so it's it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because we all know that. You know, I'm a parent, so if you have a rule that says if you do this, bad thing will happen, but you never enforce that rule, then nobody listens to the rule anymore. So mm, we'll see. Mm, mm. I think it's going to be interesting as the U.S. matures into that space because they tend to be a little bit more vocal, um, and they've got some of those companies out there that do, whether we like it or not, tend to set the precedents. Now, on another uh, topic, we are moving into the big wide world of artificial intelligence at brave new world an unprecedented <laughs> you know pace right now and you know i'm sure most of our listeners now will have um you know, spent some time looking at chat gpt and and you know the varying other tools that are that are out there with microsoft's uh recent layoffs we heard about them ditching a team that were doing uh, work on ethics uh, from an AI standpoint. And I found this interesting because I was, I'm not sure if it was the initial announcement or it was an early discussion, but I was i was sitting a, a few metres from Microsoft's uh, Satya Nadella at an event in the US a few years ago where he was talking mm. about, you know, the importance of, of having uh, an investment and a focus on, on ethics as it relates to to technology and particularly artificial intelligence. Then we heard about these uh, these layoffs uh, as, as part of you know Microsoft's uh, broader layoffs, and then we're seeing stuff coming back from Microsoft saying, "Yep, there's you know some people are being laid off. There might have been a team laid off, but it seems like their uh, messaging is, hey, no, we're we're still very very focused on this." Um, I, it can be quite hard to to kind of work through the different messaging that comes through from different perspectives and and get a handle on what's going on because we've seen uh, we've seen a bunch of similar actions across mm-hmm. other companies, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. They're not the first to be doing this. Um, it's all very easy for us to talk about ethics and its importance when we're in a boom market and everyone's hiring like crazy and you know money is pouring into the tech world. Um, Belts are being tightened, layoffs are happening at an astonishing level. I have so much sympathy for the people uh, affected all around the world. I think we're well over a quarter of a million laid off in this period now. Um, 
But you start seeing, you know, the truth of values when these kind of things hit. You know, what you say in a good time has to be echoed in your actions in a in a tough time too. And when the first teams to go are for accessibility and usability and ethics, and that's sending a very clear message of they're not seen as essential. Now, when Microsoft acquired GitHub a wee while ago now, and then Copilot started coming through and, you know, it was starting to help you and assist you building code. And we started having conversations in the software community about, well, am I okay with them reading all of my code that's held in private repositories in GitHub so that it can help somebody else write their code? And, you know, we had feelings, but there was an ethics team and there was, there was thought behind it. In the last year, we've lost almost all of the people involved in ethics in GitHub and now the, the Microsoft team. And now we're in the open AI era where quite literally all of the private repos, all of the repos that are held in, uh, in these companies have been used to feed the engines. And as a security person, I'm, it's, it's very complicated. Yes, there's a very good chance that the code that comes out the other side because of just the sheer amount of data that's been put in and the process applied is not going to be exactly the same as the data that went in. So your, your source code is not going to appear on somebody's doorstep. But how much of what you do is unique to you? And where does your IP lie and who owns that? And by using these tools, these online systems, are we truly consenting to what is now happening? It's, it's very co complex. Yeah, I th you know, I think it is. And, we, you know, we've seen things around news and content that goes online. And, I mean, even here in, in New Zealand and Australia where there's been that pushback from news media saying, hey, we've created this copyright content, this is our intellectual property, you know, that's ours, but then Google are picking it up and are doing, you know, X, mm. y, X Y, Z with it. And so there's been this, this pushback of, Google, you need to, you know, you need to actually pay for, for what you're uh, taking. It seems to me as though some some work needs to happen. It needs to happen, you know, very quickly around intellectual property, how it sits online, and the ability to, in the same way we we do with. Yeah, certain other uh, content that gets marked as Creative Commons and so on. Mm -hmm. So things are marked as, yes, you can use this, and here's the guidance around how you can use it, that we need to do that around other content from an AI perspective. So is an AI allowed to read this? What mm -hmm. can it do with it? You know, et cetera. But I'm just not sure... If if that's if that's going to happen, will people honour it anyway? Well, the exactly. content's that's there, the thing, right? right? So um, we we had um, we had a YouTuber in, in here who rented out the studio from uh, the UK uh, recently, and um, he he produced a video while 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 uh, while he was here, and he was talking about ChatGPT and, and AI. And he actually very explicitly stated on his video, "I do not give permission. You know, do not take my you know my content and and use it uh, and put it through your AI engines." And he was looking at it from that perspective of a content creator. Mm -hmm. Hold on, can can you know somebody? And and at some point in time, say, "Hey, I want to create." content just like this, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. The AI pulls it all in and then gives you an equivalent but with your face and your voice on it, right? So there's Absolutely. just there's, there's so many uh, you know, possibilities of how this plays out. And, of course, in some ways it's too late because the, the data that's out there is <laughs> yeah, being ship, absorbed, ship is right? properly so out to ocean like, already. How, how, how is this going to play out? Uh, yeah, and... Gosh, it's, I'm getting, I sound really negative this morning, but it is about enforcement, <laughs> right? Because we can all sign up to this utopian dream that we just put, like, do not use logos on things, and then people go, oh, okay, yeah, silly me, won't do that. Um, but that works really well for law-abiding citizens who like following rules, which is very few of us as humans. And for the rest of us, we'll follow them most of the time until a point where we're like, well, actually, but just on this one occasion, I'm going to... And it's just that one occasion they all build up and suddenly nothing is actually honoured. Mm. Um, as somebody who writes books and articles and training and does conference speaking, 
I fully expect now that my stuff, my my voice, my all of that's already online. I would be very surprised if my stuff hasn't been now regurgitated into the the hive mind that is OpenAI. And that kind of gives you a bit of an existential crisis, really. You know, uh, why do I even need to be me? Uh, but I think what I'm coming to terms with you. of it... Yeah, me be me. Uh, I'll just go into TikTok. Uh, like, nothing will go wrong with that. <laughs> um, I think... The way I'm starting to look at it is that I don't believe you can truly stop them using content that's online for these purposes. If it was a government, we'd have at least a slim hope. But as it's a private organization or several private organizations, we haven't got a hope. Um, but what we can do is focus on which bits are really painful. So, for example, software patenting and software copyright is already an absolute mess of a field of law. There's no way in heck that, that this is going to stand now. Um, how can you say that your algorithm is unique when it's the hybrid of you know 20,000 projects that were in GitHub? It's, there's no way. Yeah. Um, and the way we communicate that and the way we value companies based on that IP is going to have to change because you're going to have to value something else instead. Um, for people like me who are content creators, um, you've got to start thinking about not so much that, oh my goodness, people are going to take my content, but what is it about the way you do critical analysis and the way you think and the way you communicate that is distinct to you? Because that will continue to evolve. You don't stay still. You're not a static model of put things in and thing comes out. And so by continuing to embrace your own kind of skills and your own viewpoints and challenge your own assumptions, you will naturally stay ahead of where the AI is. But that means that kind of accepting that obligation on yourself as a, an organization or an individual to keep going that direction. We're going to have to find, as a society, a way to filter the things we've seen before and are now just regurgitations that are, you know, created from things to what is novel and new and to weight those things differently to each other. And we're not actually going to come up with a nirvana on this stuff. Let's, what, let's, really? Let's just, on a Monday morning? Let's, let's just face it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can do it. I believe in us. No, we're not. Um, and, you know, I think it's a, it's a truly exciting time to be in technology, but it, it's also very confronting. Um, a lot of the way we have built businesses is going to need to change. The way we've built, you know, profit models is going to have to change. And... I think the people who will benefit, the people who will really get the most from this transition are the people who can sit back and go, oh, right, so everything's up for grabs now. Everything can be changed. What can we learn from this and what can we do and experiment rapidly? If we can embrace that, yeah. we'll do really well. If we stick with, well, we can't use this, this technology is scary and we avoid it, we will be left behind. Yeah, there's a whole rabbit hole we could we could go into here. I'm just gonna just drop out a, a thought just to trigger something in listeners' minds. I, I was uh, invited out from meal in uh, in Queenstown on Friday night, and we delved into uh, all sorts of topics: uh, Silicon Valley Bank and um, AI, sort of being two of the two of the um, big ones. But I, I posed a question to which. There wasn't an answer, but I think it, it triggered some interesting thoughts. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it out there. Pick a company, mm -hmm. a software company. If you if you want uh, one to think of that's local, I threw out the name Zero, mm -hmm. but it could be could be any business. Yep. And then think about how might AI these things like ChatGPT, mm -hmm. Copilot, uh, which uh, you know, Microsoft announced the the next iteration of you know last week. So previously it was there to help with coding. Now it will be integrated into the you know the whole Microsoft 365 suite. If you look at the extreme of what these tools might be able to do, yep. how could it change that type of business? So I'm just oh. gonna, I think we just I'm going to throw that out there for All listeners right, to have it. a little bit of a think yeah. about. And we'll be interested if anyone wants to you know feedback over That's LinkedIn cool. or Twitter. What are those possibilities? And just as a, a, a couple of you know little bits and pieces, one of the numbers we heard recently from a, a very well-known developer, he said this: he is using tools like Copilot, ChatGPT to help with his software development. Eighty percent of his code is being written for him, and it's eighty percent accurate. That was mm -hmm. as at around Christmas, and of course, this yeah. stuff is developing quickly. 
So that's just one particular area. So mm-hmm. if we, we look at and and we know that Zero is just, you know, is going through a, um, a tough time for a lot of the team because there have been, you know, a big bunch of layoffs. But are we in a scenario where a business like that could be half the size, quarter the size, mm. a tenth of the size at some point in future with these technologies or any other company? So you can apply it to to anyone you can think of but yeah. there's kind of some dots to join up and just and imagine whether it's your own I'm going to send my thoughts to the others. universe on this one and, and I hope that we don't get to the point where our companies are that small because of the number of people that you know would lose amazing jobs in doing that I think a nicer way to look at it from my side is how can we change jobs so that we are getting more done um, in creative ways so instead of trying to do the same scope of what we achieve now but with less people why don't we see well if we had less to do each what amazing thing could our team achieve if you still had that 100 people there yeah and I think what most businesses want to do is to be able to move faster is to achieve more right but I think there's a there's an element there for for you know some firms which will be we're losing a lot of money and and zero you know zero has been a business that hasn't you know traditionally uh Better made money, mm-hmm. um, which was maybe why it was a good example from from yeah. that perspective. But they're also, you know, they've also been always wanting to do more. They've been focused on on growth and mm. and and adding more into into their products. And you know, AI has been a part of of their offering as well. But anyway, I'll throw that one out there. <laughs> we will uh, leave that. Otherwise, we will we will never get uh, to talk about anything else. <laughs> uh, and I'm very very keen to. Oh, a quick mention, and I don't think we've got time to, to, to really delve into this one. Um, news from from uh, Google around some security issues, shall we say, uh, with some Android devices, uh, those with, with Samsung chips. So if you are using a Samsung uh, smartphone, and there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a list online, but things like the Galaxy S, uh, S22, uh, the A series uh, devices. There's there's a few. Uh, also, some of the Google Pixel phones. Uh, there is a, a pretty critical vulnerability vulnerability out there at the moment, and um, you may need to be turning off Wi-Fi calling and voice over LTE calling and go back to traditional calling. But it, it may be a little bit complicated to work out whether your device is or isn't one mm-hmm. of the ones impacted because there are various versions, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and don't forget, team at home, rule 101 with all of these things is get your auto-patching turned on so that even if you don't get to the bit where you turn off some services, that when these patches come through, when there are resolutions, that you're going to get them straight away and allow your device to restart afterwards. Don't be that person who's like, oh, my God, my tabs will go away. I, nobody cares. Just let it restart. Let it get do it its done. thing. It's for your for your own benefit. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. All right, let's talk SafeStack. Awesome. What do you want to know? So, what's the background? What's what's the story around you know, how you how you started uh, SafeStack? Yeah. and then and you know because you've been going a number of years, mm-hmm. and then more recently during you know COVID times, things have uh, you know have really really rocketed forwards. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a bit of background on me. I started out as a software engineer when I was 17 doing COBOL. This is not a good life plan at 17. Don't do that. Um, I, tr- I tried to do COBOL as a, as a teenager <laughs> and uh, it was not fun. No. And then you had taxation systems and it really isn't fun. So um, I kind of, you know, wobbly paths aside, and that's well documented out there. Um, I ended up moving from being um, a software engineer through to being a security person uh, and working for the UK government. Moved over here to New Zealand in 2011 um, and was a consultant and a penetration tester. But I've always lived in this weird hybrid space between the software engineering world and the security world. I was the type of person who would see an interface with three buttons and go, well, how many of these can I push at once and what if it happens if I put a jam sandwich in at the same time? I just wanted to play with things and, and be curious about what would happen. Um, and so that kind of has led me on the journey to SafeStack. SafeStack founded in originally as a consultancy in 2014. Um, and there was a an kind of a, a belief behind that, that the way we did security for software was flawed. We went very slowly. We stopped people doing things. And so 
we as a company spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure out how do you do security, particularly in software, without getting in the way. Um, we did that very successfully as a consultancy till um, 2020. The trouble with that was I worked with some amazing companies all around the world from Salesforce, Pushpay, all of like these big name companies, but it doesn't scale. And not just in that I want to make more money sense, but I'm really mission driven. Um, and I always have been. Um, and I don't want it to only be those companies who have deep pockets that can do security. I want all software to be secure software. And I also believe that all of our companies are connected to each other. So, you know, you buy from companies, they buy from other companies with this big ecosystem. So when one of us is vulnerable, by virtue of that trust network we've created, all of us inherit risk. Mm -hmm. So in 2020, we dropped 94% of revenue, as you do when a pandemic hits. And there were four of us at that point, uh, all women with houseplants and, and children and home loans and all of the things that say do not do something dumb like start a product company. Um, so we decided to start a product company. Um, and so we started building the platform in the April of 2020. We had it in market in the October. Um, we're now in 65 countries in about 1,000 organizations, ranging from tiny two-person nonprofits all the way up to national level banks and airlines. And we provide a community-centric education platform. And that means we give you courses and qualifications uh, and learning pathways so that you can define kind of curriculums and journeys for your testers, your developers, your analysts, your architects, all mm. those roles in software. Yeah. We have hands-on labs for experimentation and play, and also a community where it's safe to come together and say, hey, this is hard, I have no idea what I am doing, and ask other people who are doing the same thing as you what to do, so that you're not relying on getting an external specialist in or trying to hire a security team of application security experts. There's no one to hire. So we want to essentially give what we do to the development community and make it part of software quality. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's been an adventure. That's yeah, I, I really like the approach. And the other thing is is that organizations can get started for free, right? You've Absolutely. Got a, you've got a, a free tier, so yep. people no can tricks, actually, no gimmicks, you know, no credit get, cards. Get, get stuck in. Yeah. and get access to you know some of the content and absolutely you know, and, it, and a, it's not even um, so you normally see a free plan you know for an individual we can train your entire organization for free so on our we provide development trainings our primary focus you can have 50 seats just without even speaking to a human and that will cover the OWASP top 10 so for those security nerds out there who know what that means that's our, our global standard if you will for common vulnerabilities the basic training is there for you go go get stuck in we will be happy if, you know, we reach all of these software teams at whatever stage they're at. You know, people choose to upgrade with us and become paying customers because they have more complex needs. They want to do custom pathways. They've got large teams. Mm -hmm. And we can also provide free awareness training. So um, if you want to roll out basic awareness and privacy training alongside, you can do that for up to 500 people. Um, so there is really no excuse, New Zealand company folks, if you're not doing anything, for not doing anything now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good approach. And what are the results that you're you know, you're seeing? You put put the training out there, and it's yeah. all you know. It's moved very quickly. I think it you know. It sounds like it's been been quite viral in nature with it. You know, having having reached a you know a really a really large um, yeah. audience. What sort of feedback? Well, the, have you had? the nice thing is it has to be honest feedback from development teams because they don't like being sold to. Yeah. So there's no part of me that can come on this and say, buy my stuff, because yeah. you'll just ignore me. That's fine. Yeah. You can't do cold calling. You can't do outbound marketing to them. They, they will just blacklist you within a second. So yeah. when we grow, it has to be from authentic contribution to community. So we, we genuinely know what we're talking about. We care about the problem. We are from that community. We're engineers. Um, the thing I'm enjoying the most is a lot of the time when we talk about secure development, we focus on things like, I'm writing C Sharp. How do I write this securely in C Sharp? But by the time you're writing code, you're a long way into that process. That's kind of like I'm deciding on the, you know, the structural elements of my house when I'm putting the windows in. That, that ship sailed. We're done. Um, so we take it way back to the beginning. So we teach people uh, of all ages and stages in their careers how to think about security from that initial design, how to do threat assessment and threat modeling, how to consider security when you're planning your architectures out how to do security when you've got code on a system that 
isn't in active development anymore. So, you know, you're done with it. It does what it needs to do, but it's still going to have security issues as it goes. So how do we balance that? And because we're coming from this point of empathy, because we can't say, hey, your baby is ugly, your code is bad, you should feel bad and change your life choices. It's not going to work well. (laughs) We have to come and say, hey, this is complex. Here's the things we're balancing as engineers. Here's where security fits into this. And here's the trade-offs you can make. And you're empowering at that point. You're not saying, hey, feel bad. You're saying, own this. Just like you own scaling and performance and observability. So seeing that change, seeing security come earlier, see it come through testers and analysts and architects as well as the devs, um, all those are really, really powerful. Um, And I'm really excited to see where it goes next. Mm. And... (laughs) Yeah, I've probably been vocal at, at times on where I feel New Zealand often is on varying aspects of cybersecurity. You've got a unique viewpoint here in terms of you know seeing seeing where we fit in globally. You, uh, how, how are we doing? <laughs> Look, um, we are a beautiful island with no really scary predators next to a really beautiful island with lots of predators. We're used to feeling very safe. You know, our wildlife doesn't fly and escape predators. Our frogs sometimes don't even become frog spawn. We are, everything about us makes us feel safe and warm and fuzzy. And that's wonderful. So whenever we come together and we say security is a problem and we should all do something about it, we all kind of go, yeah, but but it'll be fine. Uh, She'll be right. It'll be great. I want to kind of flip the story entirely. Security is a problem for all of us, undoubtedly. I'm not here to say it's not. It's not the biggest problem for a number of our companies right now. You know, to be honest, cash flow will be for a number of them or staffing. Um, But let's think about it differently. If we're going to become a digital powerhouse, if we're going to have all of these zeros and push pays and vens and and moxions and all of these companies that are going to go out and do wonderful things internationally, then we want to make it as easy as possible for us to sell and for us to be trusted by other companies and countries who may have a, a more sophisticated view of security than we do. So when a company overseas buys from us, they, they're deciding whether they trust us with their data. And it goes a lot easier, that process, when we have good security practices in place. So I see it as table stakes. If we're going to become an international power in the digital kind of revolution, if you will, God, there was a lot of hyperbole in that sentence, <laughs> um, then it's not about should we do security, am I going to get hacked? It's We need to do security. It is expected of us from our target audience, and that's how a power in this space behaves. It is table stakes. And once we start seeing it as part of just growing good business, good digital business, then it stops being optional. It starts being being good at what we do. And I think that's what we do best, is understanding what makes us really well equipped to, you know, let's face it, own some digital spaces if we wanted to. So that's what I want us to see. Stop saying, hey, we'll do it later because we're not being hacked right now. And say, hey, we want to grow. And part of growth is doing this really, really well. And security is part of doing this well. Yeah, I think so. And and if we can raise that that confidence, then, you know, there's there's all sorts of of flow on. Even, uh, you know, the opportunity, if you're a software developer, to join a firm that you, you know you know, cares about these things versus one that doesn't. Absolutely. It's, it's one of those things that plays out as to where where you want to be sitting. You don't want to be in a company whose reputation goes out the window yeah. on these things because you're going to be in some way linked to it if it happened on your watch or even after you've left the firm, right? Yeah. There's so many reasons why we've got to get this stuff right. We're also in a global skill shortage, right? You've run out of fingers if you're naming Kiwi companies right now who are trying to find high-quality engineers, intermediate and above, to come and fill their roles. And we're losing folks to overseas roles all the time. Now, it's a bit trickier right now with layoffs happening, but that's not a trend that's going to stop. We're going to see more and more people realise that they can choose whatever they want to be building. Now, if you grew up and you wanted to be an astronaut, maybe you don't get to be an astronaut because, you know, well, none of us do. But what if you wanted to go and work in space tech? What if you wanted to go and build the future of AI-enabled doctors who are diagnosing cancer? That's the choices you get to make as a software engineer now. You don't have to just go, well, there's three software companies in my town, and I'll choose that one because they pay the most. That's not how it's working. And so we need to consider, if we're going to attract really high-quality talent, that we're giving them good challenges to solve that are, you know, 
that they connect with on a human level and that they're not, to put it very bluntly, shoveling rubbish all day. Because if they've inherited all of this technical and security debt, that's not going to be a pleasant job to sit in. Nobody's going to sit in that for very long. And they have options. So it's, it's all part of us you kind of viewing security as no longer nice to have, but essential as part of a healthy, happy, growing software company. Good advice. Good advice. Ooh, thanks. Um, anything else you want to add before we, before we wrap up? Yeah, I'm going to put a bit of a challenge out there. Um, oh, I like this. So some of you will be doing your own security training internally. That's cool. Keep doing it. If you're rocking it, keep rocking it. There's some of you who already have programs in place. That's cool too. But whatever you're doing, I want you to make sure that every role in your software team gets a bit of security. Not just your lead engineer who happens to be super enthusiastic and went to KawaiiCon or KiwiCon once. I want every single one of them just to do one little thing and aim for just one hour of security every sprint. Now, the reason I'm saying that is we have masses of work to do in security. Mm -hmm. And engineering is a superpower for security because you're fundamentally very lazy problem-driven people. I am too. Which means that you see a problem like security and you solve it once you go, oh God, I'm not doing that again, and you'll automate it. If we get all of our engineers doing one hour of security and start automating all these tedious security problems, imagine how much we could achieve. Could we create the new security tools of the future from here because all of us, our whole engineering community does one hour every sprint. So come join our free plan if you don't have anything in place or you want to check it out. No gimmicks, no tricks. I'm not going to, you know, come hunt you down and try and sell to you. We just want to make a change. We want security to be the little pencil note on the uh, Edmunds cookbook that is software in New Zealand. Nobody knows why that pencil note is there, but we know that if we follow that little instruction, it's going to make the out outcome much, much better. So help us do that and do your one little tiny bit of security. And if you run a team, this one's a very important point. If you're the leader, if you know you know have people under you, one of the prime reasons people don't do security is because nobody ever gives them any time to do it. So give them one hour per sprint. And let's see if we can make a whole country secure. Excellent. That's great. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, now, where do people find you online? What they should, what should uh, they be looking for? You can for? find me in all the usual places. Um, so on Twitter, at lady underscore nerd. Um, I do a tiny little podcast every couple of weeks called CEO GBU, so you can get the brute force truth of what it's like to be an early stage C CEO. Um, and you can find me on the LinkedIn. Um, and, you know, at most tech gatherings nearby, I'll be loitering around. Do come and say hello, because um, security does need all of us, so I'd love to meet you. That's great. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming and, and having a hello today. Uh, and thank you to our show partners, to Vodafone, Two Degrees, Spark, HP, and Gorilla Technology. And we will be back again with another episode next week. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Laura. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.